Today on the Scott's Hope Podcast, we are in our series on the Gospel of John. John writes his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. Those of you watching us online, we're glad that you're able to join us. Uh, We all lost an hour of sleep last night. Some of us lost a little bit more. I got about an hour of sleep last night. So it's just been kind of one of those weekends, one of those evenings. But I had a lot of praying to do last night. I tell you that when I can't sleep, I pray for you. And I just wish you people would get your life straight so I can sleep. So come on. Uh, But no. It's my joy to be able to do that. Men, let me just remind you that this Saturday at 8 o'clock in the morning, we're having a men's conference here at Scotts Hill called Iron Sharpens Iron. want to encourage you to come and be a part of that. If you're not signed up, go to scottshill.info. You can get the information that you need to sign up. Those of you online, you might want to join us for that as well. I want to encourage you to come and be a part of this. Kyle Eidelman has a book called One at a Time. And in that book, he tells a story of a friend of his by the name of Caleb. Caleb uh, grew up in a home where both of his parents were professors at a university. But when Caleb was a very young boy, his mom and dad split up. His dad left his mom for a man that he met at work. And his mom left his dad for a woman that she met at work. They both came out of the closet, so to speak, and both entered into a same-sex relationship. Caleb was two years old when all this began to happen. So he grew up in two same-sex homes most of his life. And he went to a lot of gay pride parades because of his parents. When he was nine years old, he was at a gay pride parade with his mom and with her partner. And as they were walking through the streets parading, there were a group of Christians on the side of the street. And they were heckling, they were yelling all kinds of things at them, condemning them, telling them that God hates homosexuality, they're going to hell. And while he's walking and listening to this, one man from that crowd threw a cup of urine and it landed on his mom's partner. And Caleb, nine years old, asked his mom, why would he do such a thing? And she said to him, he's a Christian, and Christians hate people like us. And that was his first introduction to Christianity. Unfortunately, it wasn't going to be his last, because he heard this kind of vitriol, he heard this kind of hatred, he heard this kind of bitterness so much during his life. When he was 16 years old, Caleb was invited to go to a Bible study with a couple of friends of his at school. He said, great, I'm excited to go to this Bible study because when I get in that Bible study, I'm going to tell them everything I hate about this hateful religion called Christianity. And so he made his way to this home. The man's name was Joe. He was discipling a group of young men from uh, the community. And as Caleb was there with his friends... Um, he began to be very hostile towards the gospel. He began to be disruptive in the Bible study. He was very hateful. He was mean-spirited. He was disrespectful to Joe. Every time Joe would bring up a principle, he would counter it. He would argue with it. And he noticed that Joe never retaliated. Joe just walked in great grace. He would walk to them. He listened to him carefully. And even his own friends had a lot of patience with him. To his surprise, his friends invited him back, and he came back. 
And he came again and again. He started enjoying the conversations. He started getting involved in the discussions. And he started to wonder, why are these Christians so different? Are these the only Christians that are, that are out there that are not mean-spirited and hateful? And so he decided to go to the source himself. He went to the Word of God. And he began reading through the Gospels. And as Caleb read more and more and more, he was astounded at the person of Jesus and who he is and how compassionate and how kind he was. And then he comes to John chapter 8. And after he reads John chapter 8, his life is radically transformed. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at John chapter 8 as we're going through the portraits of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And it is one of the most incredibly astounding events that we see in the life of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, if you have your phones, whatever it is you have, find your way to John chapter 8. The Gospel of John chapter 8. This is the event, this is the, the, the historical event where Jesus encounters a woman who is caught in very much sin. Now, when you get to John chapter 8, you will see a heading over John chapter 8. It'll say most manuscripts do not include chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. And the reason that is over that passage is because when you look at the earliest manuscripts, this whole section is not in the earliest of manuscripts. In fact, because of that, there's been a lot of controversy over this entire passage. There's some people who say, we don't believe that this is authentic to John. We really don't believe John wrote it. Some scribe wrote it, and somebody inserted it between these two stories in the Gospel of John. Others will say, no, it is authentic to John, but we're not quite sure that it fits right here. It may have gone in a different place. In some manuscripts, it's at the end of John. In other manuscripts, it's located in the Gospel of Luke. One out of every six of the manuscripts that we have does not include this passage in its, original, in its earliest manuscripts. Now, we can't be sure that it was original to the original manuscripts because we don't have the original manuscripts. But there are many debates over this as whether this is an authentic passage or not. And so many people have come to this passage and they struggle with it. Some pastors refuse to even preach this whole section of scripture. Some teachers refuse to teach on it because they believe it's not authentic to the text. But there are four questions that you always have to ask when you come to difficult texts like this. One question that you have to ask is, are these verses teaching something different from the rest of scripture? The answer to that is no. The second question you have to ask, are these verses corroborating and supporting other scriptures in the Bible? The answer to that is yes. Another question you have to ask is, do we see the character of Jesus as we understand it in this passage? The answer to that is yes. And then the fourth question you have to ask, is there any definitive evidence of why this passage should be excluded? The answer to that is no. Because of that, I feel perfectly comfortable with this passage being an authentic event in the life of Jesus. I'm not sure whether it originally fit it, fits in this section, 
But the Holy Spirit has allowed us to have this. The Holy Spirit has allowed us to see this and understand this. And therefore, when we come to such a passage like this, we can rest in the truth of Scripture, that Scripture always interprets Scripture, and we can know that this is something that the Lord has given to us. So having shared that with you, helping you to understand that, let's jump into this text. Because in this passage, we see an incredible compassion in the Lord Jesus Christ that is reflected all through the Scripture. Now, at the end of John chapter 7, the Pharisees are hating Jesus at this point. They're angry with him. They're plotting to how they can have him arrested. And their whole goal is try to get him in a trap. And so John chapter 8 is a trap that the Pharisees are setting for Jesus Christ. They're going to set a trap. They're going to try to catch him in violating the law of God, which would brand him as a lawbreaker. And they're going to do it in the temple courts, which would demonstrate himself to be a fraud. As we read through this, it sounds like they brilliantly thought through this. They were going to catch Jesus, and they must have had a smug look on their face as they're thinking this, because they're thinking, we got him now. And so let's begin at how it begins. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple. Now, that was his custom, was to come to the temple and to teach. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught. In that day, it was customary for a teacher to sit, not to stand. So Jesus is taking his place in the temple courts, maybe even the court of women, because of what's about to transpire. But the people are coming to him. Now the Pharisees want to trap him. And in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Here we are introduced to the main characters of the plot that's about to unfold. The first group we see are the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the scribes were the legal experts of the law of Moses. They spent all of their time, all day, studying the law of Moses. And they would interpret it, they would translate it, and they would pass it on to people. And they would look at the lives of other people around them and try to measure or not whether or not they're living according to the law of Moses. And if you were not living according to the law, it was a serious violation in this culture. So all they did was study the law and seek to find out how it applies in people's lives. Then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. These were the people from a religious sect. These were the people that were strenuous and very strict about the application of the law in their life. All they would do all day long is try to apply it. Every little incident of the law, every little small part of the law, that's what they did. And they walked around all day with this external demonstration of the law, looking down on people who couldn't keep the law as they could. And they saw everyone else as just simply poor, unholy people. So that's the first group. Then you have the woman who has been caught in adultery. Obviously, this is a woman who has a serious sin issue in her life. And then the third person is the Lord Jesus himself. We find Jesus is caught up and wrapped up in all the middle of this drama. Now here's the wonderful thing about John chapter 8. It captures for us beautifully different people's responses to sin. 
And we live in a culture today where people constantly are trying to look at sin from all kinds of different perspectives. There are some people who are going to represent the woman. There's some people who are going to represent the Pharisees and the scribes. And then there is the Lord Jesus. And the people who follow him will represent his heart. I want us to break this down. I want you to hear how each one responds to this issue of sin. Let's begin with the most obvious. The sinner who is trapped in sin. There's a sinner in this who is trapped in her sin. Obviously, it's the woman who is caught in adultery. We find that he says, a woman who had been caught in adultery. This is not a woman who's just simply accused of adultery. This is a woman who is caught in adultery. Now, what we know of her is very little, and what we don't know of her, about her, is a lot. For example, we don't know her name. We don't know her age. We don't know her background. We don't know her family. We don't know her education. We don't know her socioeconomic status. We don't know her politics. We don't know her extended family and her network of friends. We don't know any of those things. But what we do know is this, is that she was married. Because a married woman is the only kind of woman that commit adultery. She is a married woman and she is in an adulterous affair with a man who is not her husband. We also know this, that she is married because of the, the, the punishment that they bring is for women who are married and committing adultery. So we know that she is married. She has a husband. Most likely, she has children. Most likely, she has parents. Most likely, she has relatives. Most likely, she has a network of relationships. Now, we don't know what her home life was like. Maybe her husband was abusive. Maybe her husband was maybe just um, um, an alcoholic. Maybe her husband was just disconnected emotionally from her. Maybe nothing about her marriage had worked out as she had dreamed. Maybe her husband's a good man. Maybe her husband was a righteous man. Maybe her husband took care of her. Maybe she just grew bored. Maybe she became disconnected. Maybe she was disinterested. Maybe the man that she had a relationship with was a friend. Maybe he was a neighbor. Maybe he was a coworker. Maybe he was a stranger. Maybe it began by just a conversation. Maybe it began with more conversations. Maybe she crossed a line and she kept crossing the lines and before she realized it, she is in deep over her head. Maybe she was convicted and ashamed of her sin. Maybe she was afraid of getting caught. Maybe she was wondering, what would her children think? What would her husband think? If her husband put her away, she would be in a world alone. Maybe she thought God had forgotten her. Maybe she thought she could never be forgiven. Maybe she thought that phone call was for her. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know who's that for, but... Maybe she was so caught in a trap, she didn't know how to get out. Here's the thing we do know. Listen, this was a real woman with real feelings, with real people, with real struggle, with real hurt, with real sin. And we don't know a lot about her, but this is what we do know about sin. 
Sin always constructs a trap that keeps you longer than you plan to stay and costs you more than you were willing to pay. That's always the case. Some of you know what I'm talking about right now because you're in a secret sin that nobody knows about except you and God. Some of you have found yourself in a place where you've crossed some lines yourself and you're wondering, how did I get here? Maybe it was just simply a conversation that went too far. Maybe it was clicking the wrong button on your computer and you regret going to that site. Maybe it was one drink. Maybe it was one pill. Maybe it was one thought. Maybe it was one action. But maybe you find yourself in a place where you can't even imagine how you got here. Maybe you have a sin that's going to be discovered this year by your family. Maybe you're one whose sin has already been discovered this past year and you see the consequences of the pain and the hurt. Maybe you're hoping that maybe you can even slip into the next life without anybody knowing of that secret sin of yours. Maybe you're wondering, how do I get out of it? I've tried. It's been difficult. And so what have you done? You've gotten to the place where you've just suppressed it. You're pushing it down. You're justifying it now. And you're making excuses for the trap that you find yourself in. You see, the problem with sin, unconfessed, is that it leads us to a place of slavery. That's why Jesus would say in 8, chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, you may be a believer here today, and you're trying to hide that sin. Maybe you're not a child of God, and you're trying to figure out how to get out of this sin. Well, the answer for both of us is the same. You see, the first group is the sinner who is trapped in sin. And while it seems hopeless, God has a way out. Now, when you think this woman has got it really bad, she's trapped into this sin, and you're thinking, how is she going to get out of it? It gets worse because the second group that we find here only exacerbates her slavery. And instead of helping, they push her deeper into pain that she could never have imagined. Who's the second group? Here's the second group. The self-righteous who would leave people trapped in their sin. This is, this is so bad because there are self-righteous people who would love nothing more than to see people stay trapped in their sin. Why? Because when you're trapped in your sin and your life is misery, it makes mine look a whole lot better. And we see these religious Pharisees rising up. Let me show you what Jesus says about them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They're trying to trap Jesus and they trap this woman. Now let me tell you the kind of self-righteous men these were. There are a couple of things about them. It says in the next verse that they tried to test Jesus. They, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge against him. 
They knew that they were setting this woman up and they were setting Jesus up. They cared nothing about the law and they cared nothing about this woman. What kind of men were they? Let me tell you two things about them. Number one, they were hateful men. Hateful men, despicable men. They cared nothing about this woman. They were hateful. Let me explain why they were hateful. According to the law of Moses, in order to catch someone in adultery, there has to be an eyewitness. And so these men knew this woman was having an adulterous relationship with another man. And rather than being the shepherds of Israel and going to her and saving her and pulling her out of this relationship, they placed themselves in view of the act. They may have been in the room itself. They may have been watching through a window. But whatever it was, they watched her commit sin instead of being the shepherds of Israel and leading her away from it. Not only did they do that, they took this woman after they caught her and they paraded her from the bedroom to the temple courts. Some commentators said that she had no clothes on but a sheet or a blanket. We don't know. But she was in the presence of Jesus and the whole crowd brought from the bedroom to the temple courts and condemned for every single person to see. They stripped her of her, di her dignity if there was any left. And they hated her because they held her before all to see. And lastly, they destroyed her life by bringing her from that bedroom to the temple courts to stand in the public view of everyone in the community. Her husband surely will find out. Her children surely would find out. All of her social networking groups would find out and her life would be destroyed in an instant. They cared nothing of this woman. They were absolutely hateful because all they cared about was making themselves look better. But not only were they hateful, they were hypocritical. They were men who were hypocritical. Let me tell you why. They called Jesus teacher. To use that phrase in a public declaration of someone is to give them honor. They had no honor for Jesus. They were hypocrites. They did not intend to honor him. Secondly, they cared nothing of the law. And how do we know that? Because the law says this. If a woman and a man are caught in adultery, both the woman and the man must be put to death. There's no man. He's gone. They set him free. Why? Because it was a trap. And they were holding only the woman. So they cared nothing about the law. They cared nothing about justice and righteousness. They were not seeking justice and righteousness. They would have gone to a court if that was the case. But instead, they bring it in a public thing. And they're trying to trap Jesus. And here's the trap. They say, she's caught in adultery. Jesus, what do you say? If Jesus says to let her go, then he is violating the law of Moses and he will be accused as a lawbreaker. If Jesus said stone her, then he would have sent a message to all the sinners of Jerusalem that he is not their friend and is concerned about the brokenness of their lives. And if he would have instructed them to stone her, he would have been inciting a riot against the Roman government and he'd have been arrested for treason. And so they're setting all of this up, these despicable, hateful, hypocritical men. Now, when I read that this week, I got to tell you, inside of me was disgust. 
I thought, what kind of men would do that? What kind of men would try to raise their level of spirituality to the point that they would destroy the lives of other people? And as I'm thinking about them and my disgust is rising, all of a sudden I got disgusted with myself. Because how easy is it for us to condemn the lives of other people who are not like us? How easy is it for me to point my finger at people who are failing? How easy is it for me to be angry with certain kinds of people? How easy is it for me to want to condemn other people? Then I thought about this question. Who are you tempted to condemn? Who are you tempted to write off? Who are you tempted to hurt? Who are you tempted to shame because of their sin? Let me ask you this. If there's any group of people or any person that you could bring before the Lord for judgment, who would you bring? Who would you bring? You'd bring people not like you. You would bring people who are below you. Who would you bring? Would you bring that spouse who cheated on you? and want to condemn them? Would you bring that child who disappointed you? Would you bring that mom and dad who hurt you? Maybe you would bring your boss who lied to you. Maybe you would bring people in a culture that really upset you, you know, those Democrats. <laughs> those Republicans. Those Russians. And here's the thing, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves being like the Pharisees who are more concerned about standing around and pointing the finger at the people who are failing rather than going to them with the message of the gospel and pulling them out so they can be free. So in the midst of all of this, we've got sinners who are trapped in sin. We've got self-righteous people who would like to keep sinners trapped in their sin. But then we have the third person in this, the Savior, who convicts and who changes people regardless of their sin. In the midst of all this drama, here is Jesus, and he's unlike anybody else. He's not at all like the woman who's called in adultery. He's not at all like those self-righteous Pharisees who are only building up their own spiritual self-worth. He's totally different. And what does he do? He stands in the midst of all of this. They bring this woman half naked before him. They stand behind her, giving a charge against her and say, Jesus, what do you say? What do you do? And I love his response. What does he do? Look at verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And then in verse 8, it says it again. Jesus, once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, I want you to imagine this. Here's this woman, probably weeping, knowing that she's going to be stoned. They're the self-righteous Pharisees behind her with rocks in their hands. And then there's the crowd watching Jesus. And Jesus turns his attention away from them. And he begins to write on the dirt floor in the temple courts. We don't know what he wrote. 
John doesn't tell us. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us. But there are many scholars who like to imagine what he wrote. And if you just use some sanctified reasoning, you can probably figure out. Well, one scholar says, I wonder if he was writing the Ten Commandments with the finger of God. I wonder if he was writing the names of the men who were falsely accusing her. I wonder if he's writing sins of the heart that nobody else sees about these self-righteous men. Lust, pride, envy, jealousy, greed. We don't know what he wrote, but what he wrote, they saw. They saw. And then after he finishes writing the one time, he stands up. Now remember, these guys have just set a trap. They must have been smug. We got this guy. Man, if he says let him loose, he's a lawbreaker. If he says stone them, he'll be in trouble with Rome. He'll be arrested and every person in Jerusalem will despise Jesus. They must have been smiling. Yeah, we got him. And Jesus is always the master of the moment, isn't he? He stands up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What an incredible statement. You see, in that statement, he both fulfilled the law and he expanded the spirit of the law. Because what did he do? He exposed the sinfulness of their own hearts. And they knew the sin that was written in the dirt was something that was true and they couldn't deny it. And he said, listen, those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. He also understood the law. The law says this. If you're going to stone some person, the person who is innocent from that pain has to be the one to throw the first stone. Her husband was not there. And nobody in that crowd was innocent to be able to bring a judgment except for Jesus. Now you can imagine this woman hearing Jesus saying, Whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. She must have thought, it's it. It's gone. It's done. I'm dead. He just condemned me. And he gave them the permission to throw stones at me. But then after Jesus said that, notice what happens. And then they heard it. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. What an incredible picture. When Jesus said, if you're without sin, if you're without that lust, if you're without that greed, if you're without that anger, if you're without that unfaithfulness, if you're without that spirit of pride, go ahead and throw the first stone. And the oldest ones begin to drop the stones. Instead of her hearing and feeling the stones hit her flesh, she could just hear the thump of empty rocks falling. And then, what happens? Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Do you hear the gentleness and the compassion of the Lord Jesus. In the midst of a world that's constantly condemning, here is the Savior of the world, compassionate, kind, loving.
He just simply says to her and asks the question, has no one condemned you? We've not heard from this woman until this point. And her simple response was, no one, Lord. No one. You know what I love about the compassion of Jesus? Is that when you go through the Gospels, you find that Jesus was particularly kind and compassionate to women of that culture. Do you notice that? The woman at the well. This woman who's caught in adultery. The Syrophoenician woman who has a daughter who is demon-possessed. You find the kindness of Jesus in this world to women. And I want to tell you something else that's true. Everywhere in the world, without exception, everywhere in the world where the gospel impacts, women are elevated to levels that they had not experienced before. He raises these women all across the world to places. We see that women were following Jesus in his ministry. We see that women were serving alongside of the Apostle Paul who were co-laborers with him in the life of the church. And in this whole world of competition between men and women, there is a complementary approach that God teaches us through Scripture where we're the same but different but all valuable because of what Jesus has done for us. What a beautiful picture. And what does Jesus do? He says, I do not condemn you. There's only one person who was sinless in that crowd who had the right and the authority to condemn. And he didn't do it. He did not condemn her. But then he says this. He says, go and sin no more. You see, while he didn't condemn her, listen carefully, he didn't condone her sin either. He called it what it is. And here's what we need to understand in all of this, that Jesus is compassionate and he's kind, but he is not flippant when it comes to sin. Jesus doesn't just simply wink at sin. When he said, go and sin no more, he's calling her to a place of repentance He's calling her to a place of brokenness. He's calling her to a place of seeing the seriousness of, his sin, of her sin. Why? Because in six months from this event, Jesus will die for that sin. And he, all, he dies for the sin of humanity because of the serious nature and the consequences that sin always brings. I love this about Jesus. Grace and truth. Grace and truth always demonstrating itself through a Savior who is looking to pull people who are trapped in sin out into freedom to set them free. Now, the story ends without any resolve. We don't know what the woman does. I mean, does she say, wow, man, that was really close. Woo, I'm off the hook here. You know what? I got to be a little careful next time. You know, I was getting a little sloppy in this sin. Maybe I'm off the hook. And you know what? Maybe I can salvage my life and I'm just going to move on. We don't know if she said that or not. But I believe that the implication of this passage is that she was changed because of the loving compassion of a loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with this? Let me give you two challenges in closing, okay? Two challenges for all of us. Challenge number one, owning your own sin. 
owning your own sin. There is no room in the body of Christ for self-righteous judgment of others. No room. It is not your job or my job to judge the lives of other people. But let me tell you what the responsibility is. is for me to own my own sin. To watch my own life. And when the Holy Spirit of God begins to write sins on my heart, and he begins to bring out through a convicting way those areas that I need to repent of, then I need to own that. That's mine. I don't have the right to throw stones at anybody because of my own sinfulness. And therefore, I need to live in a way where I'm constantly listening to the Spirit of God as I read the Word of God. And when the Spirit of God convicts me and says, that's a sin, confess it. I need to own that and give that to Him and to allow Him to cleanse my life in a way that He makes me the kind of man that He wants me to be. Some of you have some sins right now that you've not owned. You're justifying them. You're the victim of them. It's somebody else's fault. Everybody does that. And the Spirit of God is writing on your heart those specific things. And you will get up and walk away, suppress it, disobey it, or you will own it. And drop the stones and not be looking at the lives of other people condemning their failures while the one who knows you best is written on your heart. Own it. Confess it. Give it to him. And trust him to take it and cleanse you from it. Here's the second challenge. Showing compassion without condoning. Showing compassion to people who are lost without condoning them. I think what we want to do is we want to condemn people because we feel that if I condemn them, I don't condone it. And we miss it. Jesus demonstrated compassion, but he did not condone it. He demonstrated grace, but he demonstrated truth. And one of the things that we have to remember is this. The prerequisite for following Jesus Christ is to be a sinner and separated from him. The prerequisite for a Christ follower is a sinner. Why? Because we all start that way. Every one of us, without exception, and we're all separated from Christ. And it's only the grace of God. And when God saves me by his amazing grace, and I see the brokenness of other people's lives, I should have a compassion on their life because I would be that person. In fact, I was that person. And there should be a compassion about me for the brokenness of other people, but also the truthfulness of telling them what their greatest need is. We're living in a culture today where people want to be compassionate, but they want to condone. Oh, that's okay. God loves you. He knows your heart. You don't have to change. God loves you. He understands. He'll let you off the hook. No. God loves you. And he doesn't condone your sin. But he has answered the problem for your sin on the cross.
And there is the answer. So as we live in this world, there are people who are caught in sin. There are people who will self-righteously judge. But then there are the followers of Christ who should be compassionate but truthful as we love people with the message of the gospel. By the way, let me tell you what happened to Caleb. Caleb continued to go to that Bible study. Caleb got saved. Caleb told his parents that he gave his life to Christ. His mom disowned him. His dad kicked him out of the house. Caleb ended up moving in with Joe and his family. Caleb ended up going to seminary. He became a pastor. And 25 years later, he led his mom and dad to Jesus. He baptized them in his church. And his mom and dad left their former life of sin because of the compassion and the kindness that a church loved them through the gospel. Folks, that's what the world needs to see in us. Yes, is there firmness in truth? Absolutely. We speak the truth. We tell the truth. We help people to understand what the heart of the Father is for them, but we love them through the midst of it. Because that's what Jesus did to us. And that's what he's calling us to do to them. So who have you been condemning that you need to release? Who have you been shaming? Who have you been wanting God's judgment on? We have no right but to have compassion and truth. And I want to call you as a body of Christ to let's mimic the heart of Christ as we go through our life, to love people with the truth of the gospel and drop our stones because not one of us is capable or qualified to throw them. Not one of us. If you're here today and you're caught in sin, your answer is Jesus Christ, my friend. He is here. He will not condemn you today. He is standing with open arms and he's calling you to run to him. To surrender yourself to him. To trust in him. He will forgive you. And he will call you to freedom. If you will come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this event in the life of Jesus. And thank you, Father, for his compassion for us and indeed, Father, for the world. Father, there may be some here today who are trapped in sin and they're trying to find their way out and Jesus is the only one who can help. I pray, Father, for those who need a Savior that today they would consider Christ and they would surrender to him. That they would just give their lives to him and ask him to forgive them of their sins. Jesus died on the cross for them. He rose on the, from the dead on the third day and he's alive today. Father, we thank you that we can rest in you and we can walk in your abundant grace in our lives. 
And Father, may we grab hold to the grace over any stones that you might be honored and you might be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.